Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, this podcast series is a bit different from others you may listen to. It's not a daily news podcast. It's not Crime Junkie or a podcast dedicated to a social cause. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. You see, at the foundation of our behavior and beliefs is the way we see the world and ourselves in it. So, hopefully, this podcast will give you a new perspective and a few tools you can use to think and live better. And maybe it can help you learn something as well. And here's what I've learned. A great way to connect with people is to share a podcast. You know, it's better than a standard text message. It says, I want to say hello, but I also want to share something of value with you. So if you want to connect with someone, share this podcast. It just may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how we become better decision makers. On Tuesday, September 11, 2001, President George Bush awoke in his suite at the Colony Beach Resort in Sarasota, Florida, and he was there to visit an elementary school and to advance his education agenda. At 8 a.m., the president received his daily briefing. A CIA analyst covered Russia, China, and the Palestinian uprising in the West Bank. Then he and his team traveled in a motorcade to Emma E. Booker Elementary. As President Bush walked from the motorcade to the classroom, Carl Rove, Deputy White House Chief of Staff, mentioned to him that an airplane had crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. President Bush later said he pictured a small propeller plane that must have gotten lost in its flight plan and accidentally hit the tower. Then, as they entered the classroom, Condoleezza Rice called on a secure phone and told President Bush that the plane that struck the World Trade Center was a commercial jetliner. He wondered, how could a pilot of a jetliner possibly have flown into a skyscraper on a clear day? Well, maybe he had a heart attack. Well, he asked his communications director to start working on a statement, and he stepped into the student's classroom to participate in a reading lesson. A few minutes into the lesson with the students, Andy Card, chief of staff, stepped into the room, put his head against the president's, and told him that a second plane deliberately hit the second tower, and he said to the president, America is under attack. Now, President Bush wanted to leave the room, but he knew the host of cameras and reporters in the back of the room would record his reaction. So he waited a few minutes before leaving. As he walked into the holding room, he looked at the TV monitors and saw the smoke billowing from the trade centers and the replay of the plane hitting the second tower. He wanted to get to Washington as soon as possible. As the motorcade sped quickly down the interstate, the president called Condi Rice and learned a third plane had crashed into the Pentagon, and the Secret Service now knew the president was a likely target. So when they got to the airports, agents were carrying assault rifles and surrounded Air Force One, and the president and his team quickly boarded Air Force One, which then immediately sped down the runway and into the air. As President Bush spoke to Dick Cheney by phone, he learned another plane was in the air and headed for the White House. 
While President Bush desperately wanted to go to Washington, he couldn't. But Cheney at the time was seeking two decisions that needed to be made immediately, and only the president could make those decisions. The first, the military had dispatched combat air patrols, teams of fighter planes, to intercept the unresponsive planes over Washington and New York City. And they needed authorization from the president to shoot down passenger jets full of innocent people if necessary. The second decision was where to land Air Force One and how to communicate to the people of the United States. How do you make the decision to shoot down passenger planes? At that moment, your information is incomplete. You don't know how many planes are in the air with hijackers aboard. And what if you make a mistake and a legitimate jetliner just has communications problems, for instance, and you shoot it down? How do you explain that decision to the families of passengers who would be killed by friendly fire under the authority of the president? Now, I don't know about you, but in that moment, I'm not sure what my decision would be. In hindsight, it may seem obvious, but in that moment, without knowing the facts we know today, could you give the command to Air Force pilots to shoot down a jetliner? Well, that's the problem with decisions, isn't it? Some of the hardest decisions are hard because we have imperfect information, and there's uncertainty and risk associated with making those decisions. And in my life and your life, we make life-altering decisions with imperfect information. Who we should marry, what career we should pursue, whether to end a relationship, and the list goes on. And most of these decisions are made without knowing the end from the beginning. Well, President Bush didn't have hours or days to make the decision. He couldn't seek any more input. The decision had to be made immediately. Now, he'd been a combat pilot himself, and he knew what the pilots would be thinking when they received this authorization to shoot, and he knew how hard it would be. Nevertheless, he gave authorization to Dick Cheney, and the vice president relayed the decision. But commanders asked for a second confirmation to make sure the decision was relayed correctly. Bush again reiterated his decision. Now, hundreds of miles away in Maryland, Tuesday was supposed to be a typical day for Lieutenant Heather Penny. First Lieutenant Heather Penny had graduated from Purdue University. She studied literature and planned on teaching, but when Congress opened combat aviation to women, Penny immediately signed up. You see, her father had been a fighter pilot, and he'd flown combat missions in Vietnam. He was now a commercial airline pilot for United Airlines. So Heather became a fighter pilot. She was the only woman in her fighter pilot training class and the only woman in her fighter squadron, the 121st Fighter Squadron of the District of Columbia Air National Guard stationed at Andrews Air Force Base. The weather that day was perfect, filled with blue skies. And she was attending a morning briefing at Andrews and working on organizing the training ops for the month. About 8.45, the officers on Andrews heard that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And when Penny first heard of the plane flying into the center, she too thought it was a small aircraft that had messed up their instrument approach or something like that. Then, minutes later, they learned that a second plane had hit the second trade center. Confusion spread throughout the briefing room. And Penny looked at her commanding officer, Colonel Mark Sasseville, and he told her, you're coming with me. 
and they hurriedly put on their flight suits and ran to their F-16 fighter jets. Normally, pre-flight preparation for an F-16 takes about 30 minutes, and being a rookie, Penny's only combat experience was in training, so as she approached her plane that morning, she started going through the checklist, and Colonel Sasseville stopped her and barked, Lucky, what are you doing? Get your butt up there and let's go. Well, she quickly climbed into her cockpit, and as she powered up the engines, she shouted to the ground crew to pull the chalk blocks that were holding the wheels. So, without missiles, Penny and Sasseville climbed into their aircraft and launched into the sky. At first, there were no clear orders what they should do. They had some facts. The Pentagon had been hit by a hijacked American Airlines plane, Flight 77. And reports had started to circulate that a fourth plane, United Flight 93 out of Newark, New Jersey, was headed for D.C., for another strike on the Pentagon or the White House or Capitol building. So they headed northwest, which was to the last known location of United 93. Then word came over the radio. They had shoot-to-kill orders on any unidentified aircraft, including United 93. But Penny knew she had nothing to shoot. And that meant only one thing. She would have to use her aircraft as the weapon and ram herself into Flight 93, which was a Boeing 757 and nearly seven times the weight of her own plane. As they flew at maximum speed, Penny and Sasseville made a plan. He would fly his aircraft into the cockpit of the 757, and Penny would aim her plane for the tail of the 757 to disable it. As they sped over D.C., they could see the black smoke billowing from the Pentagon. Now, as she flew along, Penny briefly toyed with the idea of ejecting from her plane just before impact, but she quickly dismissed that idea knowing she only had one try and didn't want to miss the plane. And was it possible that the pilot of United 93 was her father? She had no way of knowing. There in the air, as she sped through the clear blue sky, Penny had to decide whether she would do what needed to be done. Could she give her own life? Could she take the lives of innocent people on the plane? Could she even do what was expected of her? Well, for 90 minutes, Penny and Sasseville made sweeps of the D.C. airspace looking for United 93. About an hour into their mission, they heard that 93 had crashed into a field in Pennsylvania, and Penny would later pay tribute to the passengers who had also made a decision to give their lives so that others could live. Well, as you and I know, on that fateful day, dozens of decisions were made that would have lasting impact. And may God bless those who made those decisions and gave their lives and have worked since to make our freedom and lives more secure and safe. Fire commanders decided to send hundreds of firefighters into the towers before they collapsed. Individuals working in the towers made decisions whether to evacuate or not, and one decision after another would seal the fate or fortune of those impacted by the events of that day. And that's the way it is with decisions. Often, the impact of decisions lasts long after the decision is made. And you and I, in our lives, may not make decisions as eventful as President Bush or Heather Penny but we make difficult decisions all the time. Mothers decide whether or not to become pregnant and have a baby, knowing full well it will take the rest of their lives to raise the child. 
You made decisions about where to live and what profession to pursue and how to raise a family and whether to be committed to your faith. And each day you decide whether to follow through on decisions already made. And with all that decision-making in your life, wouldn't it be beneficial and valuable to learn how to make better decisions? Well, I have two master's degrees and a PhD, and I never took a class focused solely on life decision-making. And there should be more classes to teach us how to do this. And you would think it would be core curriculum for every high school student or college student, right? So today, let's take a few minutes and explore the science behind decision-making and see if we can't learn a few important principles and practices to improve our decision-making. And let's turn our focus first to decisions unlike pennies or those made on 9-11, those that need to be made immediately. Let's turn our focus to decisions that need to be made, but we have time for making those decisions. Because inside those decisions is another decision, which is, when do you stop analyzing and considering your options and finally decide? When do you stop thinking about it? I mean, we've all fallen prey to analysis paralysis, and we've all likely lost out on something promising because we took too long to decide. So whether you're looking for a spouse or hiring a new employee or deciding about a job or anything else, let's consider the science of that type of decision-making. Because there is a statistically proven answer as to how long or how many options you should consider before making this type of decision. UC Berkeley professor and decision scientist Tom Griffiths says, imagine you're searching for an apartment in San Francisco. And new listings go up and come down within minutes. Open houses are mobbed, and often the keys end up in the hands of whoever can place a deposit with the landlord first. And let's assume for a moment that you care only about maximizing your chance of getting the very best apartment available. And you run into a dilemma right off the bat. How are you to know that an apartment is indeed the best unless you have a baseline to judge it by? And how are you to establish that baseline unless you look at a number of apartments first? Because the more information you gather, the better you'll know the right opportunity when you see it. So what do you do? You don't want to choose too early, but you don't want to choose too late and miss out on opportunities. Well, the answer, according to him, is simple. It's 37%. If you want the best odds of getting the best apartment, Spend 30% of your apartment hunting time exploring options. But after that point, be prepared to immediately commit, deposit and all, to the very first apartment that beats whatever you've already seen. So if you're going to look at 10 apartments, after the third or fourth you explore, commit to the first one that beats the first three to four. Now, I know what you're saying. Really? Math can tell us precisely how many options to consider before making a decision? Yes, it is a proven fact. We know this because finding an apartment in this scenario belongs to a class of mathematical problems known as optimal stopping problems, or those that follow the look and leap rule. It means that you set a predetermined amount of time for looking as you explore options and gather data then you enter the leap phase in which you are ready to commit to the very best option. So here's what science tells us about our decision-making. If you're buying a new car, for instance, 
decide how long you're going to take to buy that new car, let's say 30 days. And for the first 37% of the time, just look, don't buy, resist the urge. Then after those 12 days, buy the next best car that fits your needs. Now, if you think about it, this is sound advice. I mean, how many of us, when shopping for a new car, take the first car we look at? But the looking and patience allows you to reason, to weigh your real needs, and to get educated. Then, once the looking stage is over, you can enter the leaping stage and take the best option that comes along. Can't you see that when selecting among a number of options, and those options may not be around if you don't choose them quickly, this 37% rule is exceptionally helpful. Okay, let's move on. What are other decision-making tools that we can put to use in our life? Now, science tells us that people who have a broad knowledge in the subject area related to the decision have a higher likelihood of deciding better. So, know your circumstances. Be knowledgeable about a lot of things having to do with the subject of your decision. For example, let's say you're building a business and you have several business partners with whom you could team up. How do you decide where to spend your time with what business partner? Because you could invest a lot of time with one person only to have them not give their full effort or turn out not to be productive. So the more you know about what type of business partner you're seeking, the more you can learn about them in a short amount of time, the more you've considered the factors that make up good business partners, the better decision you will make before putting your whole effort into spending time with them. The more you know, the better decision you can make. For example, in 1980, IBM was the major powerhouse in the computer industry. And they just developed a new product for everyday households called the PC, or personal computer. And they wanted to build and sell the computers, but needed an operating system for the PC. So they reached out to a new, small company called Microsoft. Now, Microsoft CEO Bill Gates listened to IBM, and he knew the landscape well. He knew he didn't have the operating system they needed, but knew that another company, Seattle Computer Products, or SCP, had a product called QDOS. QDOS stood for Quick and Dirty Operating System. So Gates first licensed and then purchased QDOS and then turned around and licensed it as MS-DOS to IBM. And that license launched Microsoft into the powerhouse it is today. Gates was able to make this decision because he knew the industry. It was his knowledge of what SCP was working on that allowed him to make the right decision in this circumstance. Likewise, Reed Hastings, who founded Netflix in 1998, had grown his DVD rental business to over 3.6 million subscribers, a big business by any stretch. But the rise of YouTube and faster internet speeds revealed the likelihood that movies and entertainment could be streamed in the future over the internet. So Hastings went to work, understanding how changes in technology would allow the faster speeds and storage and bandwidth necessary to stream movies and entertainment shows. And based on his new understanding, Netflix moved before most other companies made the move to streaming. And despite the number of competitors in the market today, that first move by Netflix has allowed them to get over 150 million subscribers. 
Now, without an understanding of the future of the internet, Hastings may not have decided to launch his company in a new direction, because it was risky. He was giving up 3.6 million DVD subscribers in hopes of getting more online streaming subscribers. And it worked. Here's the point. Learn all you can. Know all you can. If you're in business, learn the science of it. Understand all you can about how to bring customers to your business and what type of person to team up with and how to help them move faster and more productively. If you're a parent making decisions how to raise your kids, learn all you can. It's amazing how simple this principle is and how seldom we follow it. Be a parent like Bill Gates was a CEO. Know your space. There are so many reliable books and people who can help you get educated. Don't rely on social posts or mood or habit to do your parenting. Learn the best practices and you will make decisions that will change the trajectory of your children's lives. Learn all you can. It is impossible to be both ignorant and a good decision maker. Now, let's move on to making decisions under uncertainty because this happens to us all the time. We need to be able to anticipate the future or at least see the likelihood of something happening in order to make better decisions today. But none of us have a crystal ball. So how do you predict the future? Well, for example, how do you predict whether you will have a boy or a girl in your next pregnancy? Well, there are a lot of theories and myths. For example, if you have more morning sickness, one myth is that you'll have a girl. Or if you carry the baby low, that's going to be a boy. And the internet and social media are full of myths and stories. Like it's the heart rate of the fetus that determines the gender. Well, in truth, how low you carry a baby is a function of your body shape and weight gain. And studies show that the heart rate of babies is non-distinguishable between the genders in the first 30 weeks of pregnancy. But at the end of pregnancy, a girl's heart rate does beat a little faster. There's a host of other theories of whether a wedding ring hung from a strand of the father's hair can predict the gender based on whether it swings or sways, or if a mother has a sweet tooth, or using a Chinese lunar calendar to determine the month and day of conception. All of these theories have proven false. However, it is a fact that the ratio of male to female babies born nowadays is 1.05 to 1, meaning it is slightly more likely that you can have a boy than a girl. One study did find that eating a high-calorie diet at the time of conception and eating regular breakfast may slightly increase the chance that you'll have a boy. And researchers found that 56% of women with the highest calorie intake around the time of conception did have boys compared to the 45% of women with the lowest calorie intake. But if you want the most reliable predictor, turn to genetics. The father's genetics definitely plays a role whether your baby will be a boy or a girl. I mean, we all know that the father determines the sex of the baby since the sperm carries both the X and Y chromosomes. A man's X and a woman's X combine to become a girl, and a man's Y combines with a woman's X for a new boy. But science has shown that it is possible that a man's sperm doesn't have an equal number of X and Y chromosomes. Researchers in England downloaded family trees of couples that had at least three generations of data. 
Then they modeled the births of boys and girls of this large population. The researchers found that the sex or gender ratio for families followed the father's side, not the mother's side. For example, if a man had more brothers, his own children were more likely to be male. If he had more sisters, he was more likely to have daughters. And this was not found to be the case for women. Now, this has generally held true in our family with a few exceptions. I had more sisters, and I have four daughters and one son. My son, who had more sisters, has only had daughters. And my sons-in-law generally follow the same trend with one exception. Now, this leads us to several important points. If you want to predict the future, consider your source for making those decisions. You see, it's so easy to buy into rumors and wives' tales and inaccurate theories, particularly when we take social media to be our guide. And if you're unwilling to take time to read and search and think critically, you are left to make decisions based on poor data, particularly in today's day and age in which anyone can post anything online. Don't take what you read online as fact. It can lead to poor decisions. I mean, I hear all the time that someone based a decision on what they read on a blog or a post, and I can't imagine turning your life over to someone online who may or may not know what they're talking about. But we all do it often. Next, even if statistics suggest something is more likely or less likely, it may not be that way for you. Because every decision that matters is local. Meaning, the factors closest to you should be the ones you rely on the most. Like, genetics of the father have more to do with gender than anything else. So, conditions in your life are likely to be the most important in predicting the future. Today, we hear quotes about the labor market or housing market and make decisions based on that data. But what happens in Arizona is often different than New Jersey. And your life and your local circumstances differ from others. So remember, the most important data is local. Next, don't make permanent decisions out of temporary emotion. We've all done this. I mean, we've bought a car because it smelled new inside or looked amazing or imagined we would look amazing when we drove it, only to learn later that it was impractical for our family or life. In decision-making, Science has found several unconscious biases that impact how we decide. The first is the affinity or similarity bias. You see, we prefer people or situations with similar interests or backgrounds, and we base decisions on what looks familiar. We buy a stock, for example, with a familiar name, rather than considering those outside our view or familiarity. Another bias is confirmation bias. Confirmation bias occurs when we would like a certain idea to be true, so we choose to ignore the indications that might be otherwise. We shut down gathering more information and lean to our wishful thinking. We only consider factors that confirm our view. Another bias is expediency bias. You see, some people don't like to stress or worry or work that comes along with looking at all the options or exploring options. Therefore, they select options right away to save the stress that may come with looking further. Other biases include experience bias, when we base our decision only on our own experience. One of the most famous stories of experience bias comes from the world of poker. In a rather famous Texas Hold'em tournament, 
Tom Dwan wagered $479,500 on the hand he was holding. But his hand was horrible. He was holding a two and a seven. At the same time, he was bluffing and telling his opponent, Sammy George, exactly what his cards were. And in response, Sammy relied on his own experience, thinking, I'd never tell someone what I was holding, and no one would bet 479000 on a poor hand. You don't have a deuce seven, George said. You don't have a two seven. So George folded, and Dwan, yes, with a two seven, won the game. Another bias is distance bias, when we prioritize what is nearby or in our own domain. Another is safety bias, in which we make the decision not to lose rather than to realize potential gain. The point in good decision-making is to be aware of these biases and act accordingly. So, next time you're making a decision, remember the 37% rule. Set aside time in the beginning of the process just to look, learn, and consider. Then, be prepared to act. Remember, don't buy into the rhetoric and rumors of online posts. They act as if they're fact, and sometimes, oftentimes, they're not facts at all. Do your homework. And like Bill Gates and Reed Hastings, know your circumstances. Know the environment that impacts your decisions and become educated. Don't let mood or bias or expediency or other factors influence you to decide something you would not otherwise decide and seek to become a better decision maker. It is a life skill that can benefit not only you, but those who learn from you for years to come. And most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. And join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.